the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Planets, stars, distant galaxies, nebula, meteors, comets, and everything in between. This is Good Heavens, a podcast about the cosmos and the glory of God with Wayne and Dan. You're going to need a bigger boat. Every image is a new discovery, and each will give humanity a view of the universe that we've never seen before. We're able to pick galaxies at different look-back times and from them assemble a history of how it works. We never get to see a galaxy evolve because we don't live long enough, but we get to see what galaxies look like at different ages of the universe and from that piece together that story. What exactly is that story? It is taken for granted by cosmologists and astrophysicists in the physical sciences today that whatever that story may be, God has little or nothing to do with it, and that the universe as we see it is the end result of a long, slow, gradual process that began from an indescribably hot, dense, and mostly unknown state for which there are no physical laws to describe it. Yet despite this great mystery of the beginning, the laws of physics, they believe, allegedly explain everything else. There is no need or no room for God in the naturalistic account of how the universe began and formed over time. The initial state of the universe in these models was allegedly much, much smaller than the average period at the end of a sentence, believe it or not. And from this tiny singularity, whatever it was, formed all the bajillions of stars and galaxies we see today, again, without the need for a creator. But consider, galaxies are island universes of billions upon untold billions of stars. And a star is a wonder unto itself, a massively hot and dense glowing orb made up of gas, plasma, and all kinds of other materials you'd find on the periodic table of the elements, At the core of a star, science tells us, is a gigantic nuclear fusion engine pushing outward from the center. The exterior of the star is a massive shell of plasma and gas and other stuff, just the right amount of mass needed to cap the nuclear reactions within the star. If the outer mass were too much, it would crush the core and snuff out the fusion. If the fusion were too energetic, it would blast apart the outer core. Stars, then, are an amazing knife-edge balance between nuclear fusion and gravitational force. Tilt the balance in either direction just ever so slightly, and there are no stars. So how did all of that precision come to be on its own? 
Of course, our sun is a star considered to be of average size, but average in this case includes the fact that you could string over a hundred planet Earths across the sun's midsection, kind of like a string of Christmas lights. Our sun has a diameter of over 860,000 miles. Despite this large size, astronomers call our sun a yellow dwarf. Dwarf because there are giant stars out there, literally giants. Subgiants, red giants, supergiants, and even a class called hypergiants, some of which have diameters of over 1 billion miles. Now, once more, just try to fathom how an untold multitude of these enormous stars and islands of billions of stars we call galaxies allegedly came from something much smaller than a grammatical dot. Some of the latest galactic imagery from the newly launched James Webb Space Telescope, however, as we discussed last episode, has renewed the discussion about just how old the universe really might be. The story about how the universe came into being seems to be much less settled than what scientists have previously suggested. And though Wayne and I here on Good Heavens are certainly not professional cosmologists, we suggest, maybe, that the conceptual models of the universe today are insufficient for explaining the origin and development of the universe. Simply put, what if the universe didn't slowly gradually develop over 13.8 billion years, but instead was created pretty much as we see it today, in a single 24-hour period, on day four of the Genesis account? Wayne and I believe it will become increasingly difficult for modern science to be able to continue to explain the origin of the universe from an evolutionary development perspective. We believe future discoveries are going to coincide more with a nearly instantaneous, at least a 24-hour, creation story, rather than a long, slow, evolutionary story. For the James Webb Space Telescope has discovered objects in the deepest part of the universe that some astronomers and cosmologists are suggesting are too big to fit into the current 13.8 billion year models. In short, there isn't enough time in the current models to explain these massive, distant objects. Modern cosmology, in other words, needs a bigger conceptual boat. One that takes God's existence and his creative acts seriously. For by ignoring God, ignoring a rapid 24-hour coming into being of the universe, and assuming an evolutionary development of the universe from virtually nothing, it will become increasingly difficult for cosmologists to maintain their secular models, especially as the observation technologies continue to provide greater resolution in the coming years. There are very few specialists who will have access to the most sophisticated space and ground-based telescopes, 
And it will be these elite cadre of cosmological doctors who will also be the ones to interpret and reconstruct what they believe is the real history of our universe. As astrophysicist for the James Webb Space Telescope Dr. Jane Rigby said at the beginning of the broadcast, we never get to see a galaxy evolve because we do not live long enough. But there is one who has lived long enough to tell us how it all came to be. Without his revelation, the stories that modern cosmological doctors will tell us shall remain forever woefully incomplete and wide the mark from what the real story of the universe is all about. It is not that we are suggesting that science shouldn't try to figure out what the universe is all about, but in leaving God out of the stories that they tell us, their explanations will always fall short of the glory of God. Well, you know, you know, Wayne, that when you start talking about these things, there's a couple of things to notice about what you've said. I think the first thing is that the fact that an astrophysicist like Gupta can make this hypothesis at all suggests what you said earlier about there being many tributaries that contribute to the Big Bang uh, cosmological models uh, of the universe and that you can pardon the pun, expand or contract aspects. You can expand or contract aspects of the variations that go into the Big Bang in order to make it fit the data the way we see the universe. And so that the, the, the underlying thing here is that we're not saying that this is, this is an awful or a bad problem, but it is a problem that in science our data is not complete and much is theoretical, and a lot of this is unable to be um, empirically proven in a laboratory. I mean, if, if this was like, uh, well, measuring uh, the size of a T-Rex, once and for all we know that uh, the T-Rex has this dimension and these teeth and all that stuff. That's, that's science. I mean, that's hardcore things. That, that's, that's a fact of the general species of T-Rex. But when it comes to galaxies, fossils of galaxies, uh, under an evolutionary model... Uh, the explanations that go into how these may have developed are various and sundry and different. And I think Gupta's attempt was to to blend, as you say, a couple of different uh, old models to try to get uh, to try to get the uh, to fit the data that uh, James Webb has uh, has brought about. Yeah. So I think uh, what what Gupta's put forward is is good for just making people kind of rethink assumptions nothing and, wrong with that and nothing wrong with that but um his idea of the tired light there's really pretty sound uh, physics that argues against that and i don't think he's going to get much acceptance of his idea mm-hmm. because of the tired light idea right. so for well, example one, one key problem with that is that if he has these physical constants that have to <clears throat> change in concert with each other. They have to change in the in the right way so that it doesn't cause other problems in our observations. Mm-hmm. And so multiple constants have to change in the right way together. And that's something that you could detect in experiments. In the lab, not astronomy stuff from observations out of the universe, but 
in in the physics labs on Earth, that kind of thing can be detected from measurements. Mm-hmm. And, and that's going to be hard for physicists to accept uh, the tired light idea. Yeah, yeah. Well, the other problem that we're facing in cosmology is uh, related to inflation. Because one of the ways, as you know, that uh, cosmologists measure um, distances to things and the age, ultimately, is by observing the cold spots in the cosmic microwave background radiation, which was uh, discovered by uh, Penzias and Wilson in the 1960s at the Bell Labs in New Jersey with their horn antenna. They thought that the static noise that they were getting uh, in their radio receiver, it looks like a cornucopia, um, was from pigeons <laughs> roosting in the oh, yeah. antenna. So they went yes. and they got shotguns <laughs> and they got rid of the pigeons. <laughs> yes, I heard that. Yeah, yeah. and um, but uh, they they it was two confirmations of this uh, light cosmic background radiation that uh, was confirmed by George Smoot's team in the 90s, early 90s. Uh, that uh, there's a uniform distribution of early light. It's all nearly the exact same temperature, These this early light of the very early universe. This was astounding to people. Like, how in the world can we explain light in every direction from the earliest universe that allegedly didn't have any contact uh, with itself? How can one side of the universe be the same temperature as the other side of the universe if these two sides never touched? Well, yes. along, com- along comes Alan Guth in 1980 and, and has this theory called inflation, and he won a prize. I think he got like a $3 million science prize at some point uh, not too long ago for his uh, inflationary theory. And basically what Guth says is that at the very early stages of the universe, um, some say the inflation event was the Big Bang. Some say it uh, came after the Big Bang. But Guth's whole thing was that uh, the very early light of the universe was touching itself, was touching together. Uh, was all condensed and then rapidly, super rapidly in the blink of an eye, uh, actually a lot faster than the blink of an eye, uh, it expanded from a pea to a basketball and kept expanding. Uh, And that's what would explain um, the temperature uh, consistency of the cosmic microwave background radiation. But now Mr. Guth himself and many others since have discovered that the, the great problem with inflation and there are a lot of different variations of the inflationary theory but what what was the catalyst for this inflation what caused this rapid expansion and what put the brakes on it what stopped this super rapid expansion and so now they're positing this thing called yeah. the inflaton which is not it's just a particle it's a name for it's a placeholder name for a particle that was allegedly responsible for at least the initial spark of the uh, the inflation uh, mechanism, but uh, what stopped it? What what put the brakes on the super rapid expansion? Nobody knows, um, and so that's a problem because now the expansion rate um, that people are measuring, Wayne. You know, I think uh, I don't want to get this wrong, but the, they need a deflaton. They need <laughs> they need a gas pedal and a brake. Now that pedal. that was me interjecting. <laughs> a deflaton. I like that. A deflaton. <laughs> <laughs> a brakeaton or something i don't know uh, uh some kind of braking mechanism to have slowed it down but but the expansion rate uh so you we all know albert einstein with his crazy unmatched socks and his wild hair and his violin playing he was, he was a super genius 
And uh, he and his wife, I think his name was Elsa. I forgot what his name was. Her, her name was. They were visiting the Hooker Space Telescope, Mount Wilson, uh, in the 30s. And uh, one of the gentlemen at uh, at the observatory said to Miss Einstein, you know, this is this is the telescope. This is the famous telescope that uh, Mr. Hubble used to uh, understand the nature of the universe. And she's believed, quoted as, as saying that, oh, my husband does that on the back of an old envelope. Right. Yes. So, uh, <laughs> so, so uh, Hubble looks through the telescope. Einstein just makes calculations. But of course, you know early on that Einstein, when he made his uh, his equations, he he put in what he called his greatest blunder or the fudge factor, whatever you call it, which which was a, the Greek letter lambda. And speaking of hand breaks or a break, in order to keep the universe stationary, Einstein didn't like an expanding universe. He hated the idea. He said, "Well, I'm going to put this little thing in the equation. I'm going to put a break on the universe. I'm going to I'm going to stop it from expanding." And it's it's a lambda. It's a, the Greek letter L, and it looks like an upside down Y. And when Einstein used it, he used it to stop the universe from moving. I don't want the universe to move. It's going to stay right here. So he puts this equation in there to hold the universe in place. Well, then along comes Hubble, and he says, "Well, no, the universe is moving, Al. Uh, here, here's the data, right?" And, uh, and Einstein kind of smacks his forehead and goes, "Ah, this is my greatest blunder." So. It went from Einstein trying to keep the universe immobile to the Lambda now, Wayne, is kind of a mysterious placeholder for the invisible anti-gravity force that uh, people call dark energy. Scientists call it dark energy, which, if it's real, makes up about 68% of the known universe, which is really wild. Yes. So the lambda is sometimes also referred to as the cosmological constant. And uh, whatever the lambda is, scientists aren't really sure, as dark energy is completely, as you know, Wayne, mysterious. Yes. There hasn't been a particle or a field to date that has been discovered which would confirm the reality of dark energy. But uh, the, the fascinating thing is, Wayne, that whatever it seems to be, uh, whatever this dark energy is, whatever is driving the fabric of space-time faster than the speed of light itself, is completely unknown. But, um, you know, in, in literally speaking, the lambda or the cosmological constant, whatever you want to call it, is just a placeholder term to kind of make the equations match the uh, astronomical observations. Uh, this also ties in with something else that's another controversy. It's the value of what's called the Hubble constant. Yes, absolutely. Uh, There's a, it's it's tied together. Yeah. Right. So Hubble's constant is a it's a, believed to be a constant. Okay, and it's in a simpler simple equation. V equals h r. V stands for the velocity of an object moving away from us, and r is the distance from us out into space. So uh, the redshift. It is related to this rate of expansion, and so this, the base, the the expansion of the universe is presumed by this equation, Hubble's law, and Hubble's constant is the h that makes makes the the equals work, the, the equal equality. So um, they have had uh, a number of determinations of Hubble's constant that conflict with each other. And when they get different values for Hubble's constant, 
uh, it makes the age of the universe different. Right. The, the right. age is related to uh, one divided by Hubble's constant. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the value of Hubble's constant, I think what they try to say is something like 67. Yeah, I got the I got the numbers. I just looked it up. But but sometimes they get values like in the seventies. Right. So the the Hubble constant right now. So there's a, here's the variation you just mentioned it sixty seven point four kilometers per second per megaparsec. Yeah. So parsec is about three point two six light years, and a light yeah. year itself is five point nine trillion miles. So five point nine trillion times three point two six. You do the yeah. math. A megaparsec. Is a million parsecs. Yeah. So, so 3.26 million light years is a megaparsec. So the universe is accelerating. One measurement is 67.4 kilometers per second per megaparsec. The other measurements that you measured, that you talked about, are values of 73 or 74 kilometers per second per megaparsec. So that, it may seem like, oh, that's not a big deal. It's only six or seven kilometers per second. But... That gives you different values, and they, they haven't th- – this is a variation. It just continues to, to vary. They don't have it nailed down exactly. They have it within range, but uh, but that variation is still a, an yeah, issue. Yeah, and they – see, they try to base Hubble's constant on observations about redshift, but when they try to deal – reconcile that with these really distant objects that – like James Webb is detecting, they they have some trouble reconciling the numbers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and the and other if problem, they compare if they compare nearby objects to distant objects, they get different numbers. So right. Universe, well, it's like the universe is not behaving the same everywhere. <laughs> Gets back to the Ecclesiastes verse we read at the beginning. Yes. Um, great YouTube explanation on this. If you're interested, is Dr. Becky. We watched a couple of her videos on this in preparation for our talk, and she outlines it really well uh, and gives you some visual on it uh, about the differences. It's called the crisis in cosmology, the difference between uh, the Hubble constants that we're talking about, the expansion rate, the redshifts in galaxies where we know a type 1a supernovae and a Cepheid exists, and then the um, deducing working backwards from the cosmic microwave background radiation. These two values are... um, stand in stark contrast to one another. But uh, Dr. Becky mentions uh, an issue with Cepheid variables. Cepheids were discovered by uh, Henrietta Swan Leavitt in the early 20th century. She was a computer, computer, I put that in scare quotes, at Harvard. She was calculating stars. And she discovered these Cepheids, that uh, they pulse like a lighthouse. And so at the peak of their brightness, you can you can calculate how bright a star should be by its period of brightest, uh, its its peak of brightness, followed by its its the 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 trough, the low part of its uh, dimming, and then it goes to to brightness again. And when when it gets to if you find that cycle of dimming and brightening and dimming and brightening, you can determine if you know what the the brightness of the star is. You can kind of determine how far away the galaxy is by measuring that Cepheid with a Type One A supernovae brightness. And there's only a handful of galaxies in the universe where we have both the Type 1a and the Cepheid. And uh, this is what I was talking about earlier. So there have been three galaxies that James Webb has looked at since last fall, since last November. And they wanted to compare the Hubble 
images of these Cepheids in these galaxies to the James Webb images of these Cepheids in these galaxies. So there was three galaxies that they've looked at. And um, the the first one they looked at was back in November of last year. It was NGC 1365. And then the other two they looked at this past year was NGC 5584 and uh, NGC 4258. And the overlap between Hubble and James Webb Space Telescope, they were hoping that they would discover a significant difference in the brightness of the Cepheids. Like James Webb would give us a more accurate measurement. It would cut through all the dust because it's an infrared telescope. And we would maybe see a significant difference in the brightness that Hubble recorded versus what James Webb captures. But it turns out, Wayne, um, that uh, the differences are negligible. There's, There's not a significant difference to actually change or solve the problem of of the Cepheid measurements. Apparently, the 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 brightness issue is uh, the same for both telescopes. There's literally not any significant difference that would radically close the gap between the Cepheid measurements and the cosmic microwave background radiation measurements. So the Cepheid that there being an error in Cepheid measurements seems to be off the table. So the 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 last remaining problem in the in the issue is well the models must be wrong at some somewhere in some some variable in the model in the big bang models all the variables we we're talking about something's wrong with that that's just the bottom yeah, line yeah the cepheid variables are a very useful thing they are they're incredible really very important and they're very helpful to understand some things absolutely uh dan there's a whole other idea we haven't talked about of how scientists are going to react to this these new things so we might, we mentioned Gupta, and he's increasing the age of the universe. We mentioned the cyclic universe idea, and there, there's the possibility they're just going to hang on to the existing ideas. Well, there's another another kind of – I think it's really, really kind of out there. But, uh, okay, black holes are called black holes. They're thought of as a kind of a hole in space, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> there is – in the theory, when you work out the mathematics, there is theoretically another kind of object that is called a white hole. Now, I don't think they have evidence that these exist, in my knowledge, but a white hole is like a black hole in reverse. So a black hole, nothing can escape the gravity, and every, even light gets pulled in. And but a white hole is the opposite, where nothing can come into it, and it is ejecting matter out, hmm. and energy comes out of it. Well, there's some who have argued that you can have the two connected. A black hole in one part of the universe could be connected to a white hole in the, another part of the universe, or hmm. maybe even in a different universe. And this hmm. connection, this connection between them, is what's called a wormhole, or a, the official physics name is an Einstein-Rosen bridge. Okay. Now this this is way out there in physics, way over my head. But this is um, <laughs> this is uh, theoretical stuff it comes out of mathematics. It's not necessarily that we have observations or evidence of all this. There's yeah. good evidence of black holes. 
But beyond that, the rest of this goes beyond what we really have evidence for. So we're talking about stuff, Wayne, that is um, shaking up. This is an exciting time to be living in, in cosmology. We are looking at a significant uh, beginning of a, of a significant paradigm shift in our understanding of the universe. Something is wrong. Yeah. with the way they're, that we're looking at things. So they're, so they're reaching for other ideas, and we're going mm-hmm. to see more uh, interjecting of new and, and kind of strange ideas, perhaps, to explain some of these things. So this, right. the new idea I was trying to get to is that uh, they might suggest that some of these distant galaxies or maybe the, the, the really big distant black holes, for example – Maybe they came from another universe and they came through the Einstein-Rosen bridge into our universe at the, these distant areas. of the Like somebody's uh, blowing bubbles in another universe. Uh, yeah, and because they came in already formed, that sounds a lot to me like what Martin Harwood said. Maybe stars just form from nothing at all. Maybe they just pop in from somewhere else. They just pop in from somewhere else. And uh, we're getting closer and closer to uh, to Genesis the more we speculate, it seems <laughs> yes. like. Um, but uh, speaking of speaking of the enigmatic holes out in the cosmos, Wayne, um, I know you and I uh, got together this, this past week and uh, we had pie for, for dessert and you made chili. That was very good. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about pies and you, you say you, uh, you get a half a pie at, at Kroger. And, uh, you know, I was joking around. I said, you know, that's, that's pretty smart of you to get a half a pie, Wayne, because, you know, when you buy a whole pie, you get home, open the container and there's nothing there. Right? <laughs> <laughs> a whole pie. <laughs> uh, well. Uh, you can't get something out of nothing, but... Uh, you know, Wayne, I, 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 except, except in mathematics, sometimes. Except in mathematics, you can get a whole pie. <laughs> you can get out. It's theoretical. Nobody's ever been able to eat a whole pie. Yeah. But, uh, but, but they, they exist on paper in math. But Wayne, I'm in all seriousness. It, it does seem like I bet as, as this progresses and James Webb finds more and more exotic things that, that we're going to see more Martin Harwitz coming forward and saying, you know, this whole idea of stuff coming out of nothing, it really simplifies things. <laughs> it really yeah. does. It takes away the burden of having to explain how these things naturally, gradually, over time, formed by themselves. That's the paradigm that needs to go away, I think. I think that, that the more we look at this stuff, the harder it's going to be to explain these things by a long, slow, gradual evolutionary development. I think yes. that that yeah. paradigm is is in in jeopardy. Though I don't think that we're going to have any published papers on that are going to be taken seriously anytime soon about stuff coming out of nothing. But it's already in the popular literature. Some astronomers. Uh, there was a chemist by the name of Peter Atkins. He's not a cosmologist, but a couple of years ago he wrote a book. Uh, he's an atheist. He wrote a book called Conjuring the Universe, and literally Atkins is advocating that the universe literally came out of absolutely nothing at all. Um, It's a little bit more extreme than Lawrence Krauss's 2012 book, A Universe from Nothing. At least with Krauss, his nothing is is particle fluctuations, but it's not nothing. But Atkins is taking the extreme. He's going, yeah, absolutely nothing. Our universe came out of absolutely nothing. But I, I think today what people are sort of scoffing at, I... I predict that 
this nothing idea is going to become a serious contender in the coming decade? Well, I, I don't know. Uh, I don't you know. know. It's, I but think it would... that, that what we should do is question the whole assumption of naturalism. Yeah, it's absolutely. The, it's the, the insistence on uh, explaining things with only natural processes and known forces of physics. Right. That's the problem. That's the problem. Because so here, natural processes alone cannot deliver the goods. So here is where my – I know people have been waiting a whole two episodes for this because this is part two by the time we're talking about this. Um, what did I – why in the world did I quote Hamlet and Yorick? What What did I mean by that? What was yeah. I talking about? Yeah. Why, why did you quote that? Why did I quote that? Well, it, I'm glad you brought up naturalism, Wayne, because – I think there's a parallel here that as as a society, as in a culture, in our science, in our culture in general, the overarching academic peer-reviewed assumptions about the physical world, Wayne, are inherently naturalistic. I mean, it's that's the overarching paradigm in which all cosmologists or biologists or geologists swim. Everything is explained in terms of natural processes. But when you pick up poor Yorick and you look at his skull, and I think that that is a kind of naturalism, Wayne, that we're picking this up, looking at the theory of naturalism and wondering, where are your gibes now, your gambles, your songs, your flashes of merriment that were wont to set the table on a roar? Not one now to mock your own grinning. And I love what he says to, to, to Yorick's skull. Go tell my lady, go tell my mother that she can put on all the makeup that she wants. But the truth of the matter is she's coming to this too. There's nothing that you can do to avoid the very real problem of dressing up naturalistic theories that try to avoid. Some some do, some don't, but I think most people, naturalism is appealing for a lot of people because it does do away with God but in the end it has no it has no answer for why we're here why we live where we came from where we're going what is the purpose of all of this so no matter how you dress up the universe in naturalistic makeup Wayne that yes. in the end we're, we're, we're coming back to the reality that God created it all yeah, and I, I think uh, I come back to a supernatural creation by a creator God absolutely. who is creating with purpose. Right, that, we cannot. That makes more sense in that it's it it's it doesn't have to follow the naturalistic patterns that the mathematics will point you to. Right, exactly, because the math says it. It's conceivably a lot of people say, well, the math says it, so it must be possible and yet i think naturalism is a kind of makeup it tries to gloss over or cover over the very real uh, and serious text of what we have in, in genesis i i think that's a good uh, that's a good way to put it you you can't you can dress it up all you want to wayne but it's not in the end going to avoid 
the very real implication that this is God's universe. He created it for a purpose. He created it to be known. But he also concealed from us everything he's done from beginning to end. We're not going to find out everything he's done. This, this doesn't stop science. It's, it's not a prohibition against, against science, against doing science. But it is a, a recognition of our limitations and that whether it's a large hadron collider trying to find the smallest particles or whether it's the James Webb Space Telescope trying to find the most distant objects in the universe, uh, the answers to what this all means is not going to come through a telescope or uh, a collider. Uh, and you can't you can dress it up all you want to with naturalistic makeup. But in the end, the more you continue to do that, I think, the harder and harder and the more difficult it's going to be to try to maintain that facade. Yeah, um, and Dan, we talked about the cyclic universe idea. Well, there are some religions in the world and some people that, that would like a cyclic universe idea. Mm-hmm. That would tend mm-hmm. to fit right in with some of their ideas. There might be cults that would like that idea. Carl Sagan points this out in Cosmos. He has a whole section where he talks about how ancient Hindu cosmology has similarities and overlap with modern scientific cosmologies. Um, but, you know, but I think it still ends up with the, the kind of a purposelessness it does. problem. It uh, does. Even then. It does. I mean, in the modern cosmology, you know, the, the whole exciting thing seems to be, well, stars exploded created the carbon that we have in our bodies and so we're star stuff well okay (laughs) then why are we surprised when we're killing each other and blowing things up because that's what our natures are right star stuff stars explode so why 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 are we surprised when uh, there's evil in the world there's no there's no governing moral authority in the universe so why why be shocked at, at at people's behavior if you're, it really is a matter of in a naturalistic worldview, evil is really sadly just a matter of personal preference. The worst you can say is, "I don't like that." Not that's morally wrong. Yeah, and you but you th- can't. There's not enough makeup to get back to Hamlet again. There's not enough makeup to dress up naturalistic theories about our existence. This, you can't. This, do it. this makes me think of an old quote by. I don't know who it was that said this. It was a it was a man from Russia from a long time ago. You know, the Russian Revolution in 1917 changed mm-hmm. Russia to that kind of naturalistic mindset. Mm-hmm. And uh, someone said uh, years after that, okay, after World War One and World War Two, and this this whoever said this was apparently an, an old man by the time he said. Uh, Men have forgotten God, and that is why all this happened. That's the that 20th tells, century. That tells the story. That's the 20th century in a nutshell. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Wayne, lots of good mysteries to delve into. We'll put some links uh, for our listeners to explore on your own. Um, you know, the other thing too, Wayne, and I, I think this is why I like doing Good Heavens, I'm not saying that we have the final say on everything, but um, when you and I go digging for information on what's going on with James Webb or what's going on in the cosmos, I don't run across a lot of Christians talking about this or thinking about this. I'm not saying that we have the best perspective on it, but I am saying that there is a dearth of thoughtful 
Christian theology being brought to the table about these discussions. It's like science there is, is yeah. totally dominating this. The, they have the tools. They built the toys. They are the ones that look through them. And they are the ones that give us what it all means. And the voice, the theological voice that for years sustained the practice of science back in the early 17th, 18th centuries is, is virtually silent. We have just kind of given this up. And uh, I hope our listeners will be more encouraged to think biblically about this, not be afraid when an atheist or a skeptic says, well, look at the science of the universe. It's completely disproving Genesis. But the more we dig into it, Wayne, the more it seems like we are approaching uh, a zenith, a, 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 the end of the cul-de-sac, where it's becoming increasingly more difficult to ignore the very real uh, exposition of what we have in Genesis of God creating things um, instantaneously within a 24-hour period for each of the things that he describes in the Bible. And I think science, naturalism, materialism, um, it's sad to see Christians jumping on the bandwagon of, of evolution, especially when there's such a crisis within evolution, not only within evolution, within neo-Darwinism, but also within cosmology. There's, there's no reason, I don't think, I mean, when you and I have talked about this many times on many different episodes, that when you buy the Big Bang cosmology to sort of bolster Genesis. See, science says we had a beginning, and so therefore Genesis. But when you purchase, if you will, the Big Bang cosmology to sort of lend credence to the Genesis account, I mean, Genesis doesn't need Big Bang cosmology to, to prove its truth, um, that th it's kind of like a high interest rate credit card. Okay, you can buy that, but it comes with an interest rate of 57%. I mean, is that really a good purchase? Because there's so many other details that go along with a Big Bang cosmological model that is contrary to what I think Scripture teaches. And it just I see a lot of people just kind of giving into the science and trying to figure out a way to tack a Bible verse onto it or something. But, um, Wayne, I'm glad we're doing this. I, I hope, um, you know, these are just our opinions and thoughts about what we look at. But I hope it encourages our listeners to, to, to really look at these things, to really understand Genesis, and to really understand that God is creator and Lord, and there's nothing in Genesis that is contrary to what the most sophisticated cosmological tools have uncovered in our universe. Yes, in fact, um, I'd like to read another scripture, Dan. Absolutely. And it kind of finishes a while. God says in his word that he's really going to have the last word in the end. Mm -hmm. essentially and um, oh, by the way I would like to mention another podcast we did one of the podcasts we did about the James Webb te Space Telescope was called Kings of the Cosmos yeah that was, was fun May 2023 and I that think fun. that's where we spent a lot of time explaining the whole prom time problem about these early galaxies and galaxy formation ideas and why there's a problem with this. And uh, so if you want some more background on what we're talking about, you might go back to the Kings of the Cosmos program in May 2023. Excellent. And listen to that. But anyway, I wanted to mention this, uh, this is something from Isaiah 29. And this is uh, verse uh, 14. Uh, therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. 
the wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Mm. Mm. Now, I don't think that means that scientific investigation is futile. What I, what I would say there is there are there are assumptions you can make that end up being fruitful and there are assumptions you can make that end up being futile. And when you keep building on a fragile house of cards, there comes a time when you should question the whole house of cards. Right. And start start over from the beginning. Right. Um, from the foundation of your thinking. I'm all for, we are all for scientific uh, investigation of the cosmos, but uh, we have to understand too that the people that are doing the investigation are also doing the interpreting. And oftentimes that interpretation completely leaves God out of it. Um, and so... Uh, yeah, and may, maybe the real answers about the universe are something that no one will ever figure out. Yeah. Maybe it's just beyond our beyond our imagination. Uh, and when we get to heaven, God will explain it. Seems and like we'll uh, think, wow, I we never thought of it. That's right. It seems like Wayne that uh, every time we build a new tool, yeah, it brings up more questions than yeah. it answers. In some, so it's exciting in one sense, but you can't have your James Webb Space Telescope and your current paradigm too. One's got to go. Yeah, something has to give. <laughs> something has to give, and we are watching right now an unfolding of something about to give way. Um, what that might be, it will be really interesting to see how naturalistically explanations are offered, whether they're going to try to fit them into the 13.8 billion years or whether they're going to try to extend the age of the universe or whether they're going to try to make stuff come out of wormholes or nothing. Right. Uh, the possi- <laughs> There's not a whole lot of possibilities. We uh, we need, like they said in Jaws, um, we need a bigger boat. <laughs> <laughs> you need a bigger paradigm. Yes. The, yes. These monsters are out there with giant teeth. Uh, That's sm- right. Smiling back at us. And uh, yes. the little dinghy in which we operate is uh, is hardly <laughs> sufficient. <laughs> so, uh, but you know, I, we we are not uh, professional cosmologists, but we're just trying to think out loud on our podcasts, and uh, we apologize for any science that we may have gotten wrong. But we try to be accurate, and we try to understand the popular literature and what's out there, so that you, as uh, good Christian folks, can have something to chew on and uh, something to to consider and think about theologically and biblically. Yeah, and I I just hope at least that uh, the, the people listening, whether they're Christians or not, they will not be afraid of the technical aspect of some of this yes. too much. You know, right. we're trying to make it understandable, and there is there is enough here that the average person can, um, I think, make up their mind what they believe. And, Absolutely, it should not be intimidated by the the. The science, right? Ideas. If we were, um, if we were in uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, you know, a little modern version of Pilgrim. Yes, that uh, Pilgrim, you know, that Bunyan describes giants along Pilgrim's Way. You know, there's giant, right. giant despair, and all these other giants and things. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, if you did a modern adaptation of Pilgrim, you, there would be uh, a new giant. He would be called Giant Math. <laughs> <laughs> 
He would just be yelling equations at uh, at, at poor pilgrims. Like, what do you know? Well, Here's well, an Dan, equation. Maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe you should write a, a modern analogy. I uh, thought about uh, doing that a while ago. Progress. You know, just uh, pilgrim encounters giant math, and he's held prisoner yeah. in his castle, and he has to figure out <laughs> differential equations in order to escape. Yeah, <laughs> but in, in some sense, I think that's 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 a lot of our attitude, and in, in that this is cosmology is way too complicated. And how dare I question the experts? Um, but I think God has made the universe so that everybody can can understand it, know it, appreciate it. Psalm one eleven two, great are the works of the Lord; they're studied by all who delight in them. That is a a verse of scripture that was put over the door of the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge. Uh, when James Clerk Maxwell built his laboratory to study electromagnetic uh, phenomena. And when they made a new uh, Cavendish lab, they kept the psalm and put it over the door of the new lab, too. So that uh, psalm is there in Cambridge, as far as I understand. But it's, it stands as a way of, of doing good science. The works of the Lord, they're great, and they're studied by all who delight in them, even though many people who study them uh, don't acknowledge that, that God exists or that he's Lord. But um, I think we've had a, a, a good show, Wayne. I think we've tied up all the loose ends, explained why we talked about Methuselah and Ecclesiastes and Hamlet. And uh, naturalism may seem to be uh, holding ground today, but uh, I think the reality of it will be that, uh, as you read from Isaiah, naturalism will eventually give way to God who has the final say in everything. Amen. Amen. So, Wayne, we will see you right here next time on Good Heavens. Good Heavens. Good Heavens is recorded and produced by Watchman Fellowship Incorporated. For more information about our podcast and ministry, including having our staff speak at your church, visit watchman.org. That's watchman.org. For more information and resources on apologetics, world religions, cults, and other non-Christian ideologies and spiritual practices. For Watchman Fellowship, I'm Anna-Marie Smiths.